Hey, entrepreneurs, it's Steph here. Do you want to experience what it's like to be part of our Entrepreneurial League community of founders? Now is your chance. New member open enrollment begins on June 10th, and so does our Experience Week. I really want you to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to be part of the most supportive community that will be here to support you at all stages of your business journey during our Experience Week. This will be a five-day virtual event series, and it starts on Monday, June 10th through Friday, June 14th. You're going to get access to live networking and learning events, business growth strategies, as well as office hours with Kim Perel, who is a CEO and serial entrepreneurista, as well as a prominent angel investor. You will also get access to a session on how to win grants with Kat Weaver and Katie Dunn, founders of Power to Pitch. Plus, our mentor, Carrie Kirpin, will be teaching a session all about how to build a profitable business that can sell for more money. And of course, I'll be hosting two info and networking sessions where you can really get an inside look at all of the exclusive benefits and resources that are offered only inside of our Entrepreneurs League community. Plus, you'll have the chance to meet and build relationships with current members. You can register today for Experience Week over at entrepreneurs.com forward slash experience week. That's entrepreneurs.com forward slash experience week to join us for a week of free virtual events. I cannot wait to meet you and be part of your business journey. The vast majority of people you talk to will reject you. And when I say vast majority, I mean 95%. And that's pretty normal. You're not like a bad entrepreneur because those are your numbers. That's pretty typical. And so because of that, you really have to talk track yourself into staying positive, positive forward. I am going to be resilient. How do I get myself to a place where we have the perseverance to push? It really requires you developing toughness around rejection because the rejection will be relentless. There's no such thing as, well, now I'm at my series A or now I'm at my series B or now I'm at my series C. So it's so much easier. I'm married to somebody who is very far along in his journey and people still say no and tell him all the reasons why they don't like his business. And that's okay. You just need to find the few that do. Jane Mossbacker Morris is the founder and CEO of To The Market, a sustainable sourcing company that connects businesses and consumers to ethically made products from around the world. Tune in to hear how Jane was introduced to supply chain management her fundraising efforts and tips for growth and her experience working with clients like Bloomingdale's, Dillard's and Target. Coming up, Jane shares how her entrepreneurial spirit was clear from a very young age. A unique look into To The Market's mission, vision, values and strategic pillars. Jane shares her best tips for fundraising and growth, her experience and advice in tech development and finally, the importance of resilience and facing rejection head on. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. 
Jane, I am so excited to have this conversation with you today. You have such an incredible background and amazing entrepreneurial journey and story that I know our listeners are going to, about to learn so much from you. I would love to know first, did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Oh, I don't think I knew what that meant growing up, but I think if I had the ability to sort of hover over myself as a child and watch my behavior. I think there was a lot of entrepreneurial activity happening. So I was constantly coming up with businesses that like, for example, one of my favorites is that I I created an overnight camp for my little sister's Ah. friends, charged them, charged the parents. I love that. (laughs) to, To essentially babysit, like developed out this liking entire overnight experience at our Bay house, which I'm sure like if I was a fly on the wall, I would have been crying laughing because I took myself so seriously as camp director. Wait, how old were you when you did that? I think I was in maybe fifth or sixth grade. My sister's friends were probably in first or second grade, but it was awesome. Like we had like two competing teams, like the, like you would at overnight camp. We, I made up a song. I mean, just things like that copy paste oh it was awesome I mean I thought it was like just the coolest thing I'd ever created of course my mom behind the scenes you know had babysitters that were babysitting me as I was babysitting you know the kids but um no I was always like spinning up things like that that you know whether it was a play it was a school it was a camp trying to create something and so the the activities were there I just don't think I knew what it meant to be an entrepreneur What did you decide to go to school for and study and share a little bit about your career path and what led you to start to the market? Yeah, so uh, obviously very different. I uh, was in high school when 9-11 happened. Um, I was in high school a couple hours outside of New York City and just really had a big impact on me. And I began to think about national security And so I ended up going to Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service to study national security for undergraduate and ended up getting hired. Gosh, my junior year of college, I started interning and then was hired as an employee my senior year to actually work at the State Department in counterterrorism. That was what I thought I would be doing for, you know, decades to come. Of course, that is not how it all unfolded. I stayed in counterterrorism for the first chunk of my career, a healthy amount, but it was really time on the ground um, in places like Afghanistan, where I realized that I actually really wanted to focus on job creation, job sustainment, and driving change through the private sector, because I felt like we could have a, a bigger impact, actually, than public sector interventions. And so I did an MBA at Columbia um, while I was still working at the State Department and uh, really got excited about the industry I'm now in, which is retail manufacturing, because I realized that it was a massive industry that was very underserved, meaning underinvested in, that was a massive job creator. And there was huge, huge room to drive change by really bringing technology to the industry, by bringing better working conditions to the industry, by bringing more sustainable production to the industry. And that sort of spun up into what I'm doing now, which is to the market. Was to the market your first business that you started, or was there something else that you started first that became to the market? 
No, it was the first business like as an adult. I mean, meaning like not as a camp or totally. Which by uh, the way, so no. by the way, I was selling pogs, beanie babies, friendship bracelets, <laughs> Girl Scout cookies. So like doing all the plays, charging people to come, all the things. So I feel like I know why Alyssa initially connected us, like two peas in the pod, same mindset. <laughs> Totally. Well, Pogs sort of beats me on coolness, um, but I'm right there with you on Girl Scout cookies. I mean, I one of my favorite stories I tell about the Girl Scouts is that we, of course, as you remember, that there's like a contest, you know, the number of boxes equals like number of points you get, which equals prizes. And I was like, Ooh, I've got to get a bike. And so I guess the, the scheme I had hatched in my head was I asked my mom, for the phone numbers of all of the people who lived on the most expensive street in Houston, which is where I grew like I grew up in Houston. And my mom was like, we won't be sharing the phone <laughs> numbers of those people. However, I will let you walk the street um, and knock on the doors and try to sell. But I love the uh, identifying where there's economic opportunity <laughs> story, but I love the pogs though. That's, that one's, that's a goodie. Oh yes, I, I was in the pog pog resale business. <laughs> so good. <sighs> all right, okay, back to, to the market. I, we could talk about Beanie Babies, pogs, and girls. Talk about pogs all day. Glamours, <laughs> <laughs> all the things. Okay, yeah. to the market. So you have this idea. What was your first step to start this business? First step is that I wanted to validate like this idea. So my idea, my thesis was I had studied the agriculture sector. Ag is agriculture is the largest economy in the developing world, which makes sense, right? It's what powers all of our food and beverage products. And what was super interesting to me about the agriculture sector is that there had been such a shift in the supply chains, in the food and beverage space. I mean, we went from Folgers, and I'm not hitting on Folgers, but we went, you know, from Folgers being like the most prolific brand that you could access for coffee to Starbucks being on the side of a freeway. And suddenly you're getting direct trade coffee that's, you know, fairly traded and same thing with food. I, I, again, I'm from Texas. I remember Whole Foods coming about and at first it was viewed as this like hippie grocery mart where you could get like granola and fresh flowers. And now it's Amazon. And so what's the point? The point is, is that the way that our country has sourced our food and beverage products, like the ingredients that go into them has so changed. And that hasn't necessarily happened in things like apparel, accessories, home goods. And so my thesis is I can copy the same approach. I can help supply chain shift towards better factories, towards better artisan groups that are more ethical and are more sustainable, and then give the buyer and then the end consumer a better product, a more sustainable product, a more ethical product, just like we have experienced in ag. And so to validate that idea, I actually bootstrapped for a year and a half and traveled all over the world, met with groups on the ground in country, tried to understand, you know, why was it hard for them to sell into the U.S., the big companies, that with big companies, you know, you say you want to do good, but tell me why your supply chain looks like this. I mean, I said it in a slightly more diplomatic way, but I was trying to understand, you know, why was there such a disconnect between say and do? And that validation is what then gave me confidence to go out and raise our pre-seed round in 2018. What was the process of raising that pre-seed round like for you? So for our listeners who are thinking about raising money, 
what, what were some of those first steps and some learning lessons? First steps, I think, is understanding why you want to raise money, which sounds super simple. But the reason I say that is that raising money shouldn't be done just because you feel like that's what people do to build a business. Um, you're signing yourself up for a, a certain path um, that's going to be very different than a path of growing organically. And there's nothing wrong with growing organically or, you know, taking a non sort of venture type path. One is not better than the other. Like venture is not more glamorous than organic growth, despite, you know, what maybe the media makes it out to be. Um, in fact, it's, it's in some respects, I think a much more painful journey. And so deciding like, why do I want to raise money? Do I want to raise money? Cause I can't afford to start the business at all. Because if that's the case, you know, then it's a function of, is there opportunity for me to look at debt, meaning go to a bank, find a loan or borrow money from, from family or friends, if that's a possibility. If the answer is because I want to grow like a rocket ship, then you are getting closer to a place of thinking maybe venture is a good fit. Either way, though, you need to have a, a serious sense as to how quickly you want to grow. Um, what you want that growth to look like, meaning do I want to grow 10% a year or do I want to grow 100% a year? Because the answer to that question is either going to drive you into the arms of a bank, 10% a year, or if you want to grow 100% a year, then venture is a better fit for you. So asking why I think is so important and being intellectually honest with yourself in the answer, right? I'm not just going to answer, oh, because that's what we do. Like actually ask yourself, is that right for me? Is this authentically the right decision for me and for my business? For us, we felt like we in fact did want to grow very quickly because we felt so strongly that this industry needed to shift and that we were the right solution. And so raising from venture investors was the path that I chose. And it continues to be the path that I choose. That said, as with any path, there are you know major pros and major cons um, to that path. So in the prep of sort of you know going down that path, what I would say to folks is get really honest with yourself about what you want to sign up for. If you want to sign up for living a life where it feels like you're always in finals, so think of it like being in school, you're in school, finals is that like constant adrenaline, like, you know, not a lot of sleep and like, you're just constantly crunching it in, trying to make it work, getting it over the goal line. Like that will become your life if you are venture backed. A hundred percent guarantee that that is your existence essentially all the time if you want to pursue that path. And so just sort of getting, you know, mentally aligned around that is critical in addition to, you know, getting all your materials ready, financial projections, investor deck, what your team's going to look like, what your use of proceeds, all the sort of key questions that people who might be interested in supporting you are going to ask you. How did you determine how much money you needed to raise in that first round to get to where you needed to be? Working backwards, you have to say, okay, if I want to do 500,000, let's say I'm at a hundred thousand in my business because I've been bootstrapping and I want to get to 500,000. What would have to be in place for me to get to 500,000? Would I have to have 150,000 available for digital advertising? And I'd have to have two salespeople that were full-time and they both cost 60,000. 
so I think coming up with a, a number, a goal as to how quickly you want to grow. I want to double, I want to triple, I want to forex, whatever it is. And then asking what would realistically need to be in place for you to achieve that milestone is a good way to sort of get a sense for how much you should raise. And then beyond that, you don't want to just raise enough to get to that point. You want to cushion, you know, whatever you're raising to give you extra leeway because unfortunately everything always takes longer than you want it to and how longer than you think it will. Everything from hiring to, you know, getting the the formula right on your digital advertising to launching. I mean, all of the sort of variable inputs that go into the formula of success typically take longer than like your most cushiony projections. And so giving yourself extra space is also super helpful. And how have you been able to remain focused and positive and just keep going through all of the ups and downs and emotional ups and downs of fundraising? I think it's important to develop scar tissue, which is really hard to do. And it's hard to do, especially if you don't have a lot of scar tissue. So if you're someone who is used to a formula of I input X and I output Y, it is so unfortunately not like that, right? You can input a thousand X and output like Y minus five. Um, there was a study I read last night that Docsend did that said that in 2021, female founders did far more meetings um, than they have in the past and still raise less money than maybe their male peers. And I share that because my point is, is that the vast majority of people you talk to will reject you. And when I say vast majority, I mean 95%. And that's pretty normal. You're not like a bad entrepreneur because those are your numbers. That's pretty typical. And so because of that, you really have to talk track yourself into staying positive, positive forward. I am going to be resilient. How do I get myself to a place where we have the perseverance to push? It really requires you developing toughness around rejection because the rejection will be relentless always. It will, it doesn't get, there's no such thing as, well, now I'm at my series A or now I'm at my series B or now I'm at my series C. So it's so much easier. I'm married to somebody who is very far along in his journey. I mean, you know, he's about to go public and people still say no and tell him all the reasons why they don't like his business. This is just an inevitable part of raising money is that the vast majority of people won't get it. And that's okay. Because it's all you need to do is, yes, exactly. You just need to find the few that do. So what was the feeling like when you got that first, yes, we're in, we want to invest and be part of your journey? I would say I tend to get more like relief than I would say like, you know, feeling ecstatic. I think, you know, one of the things that served me, but like is a, a little bit different is that because I'm so even keeled, my lows are like pretty tempered, you know, all the rejection. I'm like, okay. But like the highs, I'm still like, okay, you know, like I'm not somebody who swings really, you know, which obviously, you know, drives people like my husband nuts because he's like, are you excited? Or like, aren't you mad? I think, I think it's a good thing though, as an entrepreneur, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty similar to you and that I really like to just keep it pretty even because 
being an entrepreneur, there's so many ups and downs, like literally every single day, like this amazing thing happens and this horrible thing happens, but you just have to stay the course and keep going throughout, throughout the day. So I totally get it. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, I mean, anytime anybody says yes, I'm obviously really humbled, right. That they're going to hand over money that they've raised or earned and they're trusting me and our team to, execute. So it's a hugely humbling experience. And, you know, I take it really seriously. Like this is, this is somebody's hard earned uh, resources. And I want to be the best steward of those resources to help, you know, realize positive outcomes Mm. for them. Hi, entrepreneurs. You know, I am always here to provide you with as much value as possible. So I wanted to be sure that you have access to the Entreprenista Agenda, our weekly newsletter where we share the latest business news, success stories, grant opportunities, as well as all of our favorite resources and special offers for founders just like you. You can sign up to join our weekly newsletter and join over 50,000 other Entreprenistas over at entreprenista.com forward slash newsletter. That's entreprenista.com slash newsletter to subscribe to the Entreprenista agenda. Jane, can you share a little background on what the structure of your business is and really what you offer? Yeah. So our vision uh, to the market is to change retail manufacturing, to empower people and protect the planet. So what does that mean? Um, That means is we want to make it as easy as possible for brands, for retailers, for corporations, even nonprofits uh, to source and manufacture ethically and sustainably. We have built a technology platform that allows us to work with suppliers that we think are, you know, incredible for people, incredible for the planet, and actually uh, source seamlessly and digitally um, with them uh, and through them to offer clients custom goods, semi-custom goods, things like apparel, accessories, home goods all with sustainable materials, ethical production processes, and we're able to deliver all of that with what we call impact metrics. So if a client orders, let's say 100,000 t-shirts, we can say uh, because we used a certain type of cotton, let's say GOTS, Global Organic Textile Standard Cotton, um, and we produced it in a GOTS certified factory, that working through to the market supply chain, they were able to offset this many carbon emissions, save this many kilowatts of energy, save this many liters of water, create this many fair wages. And so really give them powerful data that allows them to communicate to consumers or communicate to maybe their investors or employees about how they really harness their purchasing power for good. I know many of our entrepreneurs that you've actually connected with recently are looking for suppliers to be able to make products for their businesses. Many of them have fashion brands. And I would love if you could share a little bit about what the process looks like to work with you. So for entrepreneurs listening who are thinking about starting a clothing business or, you know, even tell me what other types of businesses are the right type of fit to work with you. So to the market focuses on apparel, accessories, and home goods. In apparel, we are really focused on sustainable cut and sew product. So we're great at things like 
onesies, hoodies, leggings, t-shirts, PJs, not your best fit for things like sequin gowns. So we're really focused on that sustainable material when we cut and sew. And then in accessories, we do jewelry, we do bags, we do headwear, scarves. And again, uh, most of that is done in a sustainable fabrication. And then in home goods, that's where there's a little bit more diverse uh, offering because we work with a lot of artisan groups who have more traditional techniques. So they might be doing things like woodworking. They might be doing things like basket making. So there's definitely more variety uh, within the home space, but uh, still do a fair amount of sustainable material cut and sew even within that. Um, so what is it like to work into the market? So typically it starts with conversation with the client. So a client will say, hey, we are interested in shifting our production for my pajama line away from a conventional factory using conventional materials into a more sustainable and ethical factory, really wanting to bring more sustainability to my line. We'll say, that's awesome. Can you tell me how many units you, you typically produce a season? Um, do you have a target price point? So ask some clarifying questions to help us really scope what's the best type of producer for that project. After the conversation to the market, will go into our platform. So to the market's backend platform that we've built, and we will actually filter down against our vetted and approved makers based off of what the client has shared. So we might go in and say, okay, she's only doing 500 units a, a product. And so we wanna have a small batch maker. She said that she wants to really use organic cotton. So maybe we're gonna pick a GOTS certified organic cotton supplier. And she said that she is um, producing a luxury good. And so we are not going to necessarily make sure that we're filtering by you know, the lowest price. We just really wanna be looking at the best fit. Then based off of that filtering, we're gonna see examples of makers who fit that criteria. And we can then type in something like pajamas or onesies or you know, whatever type of PJ that's being made and begin to see examples of products that these vetted and approved makers are creating. We can click into those, we can see pricing. We can then from there actually present example pricing based off of what our client has given us to the client so that she can understand, okay, if you started to work with this, you know, better for people, better for the planet factory with a sustainable material, your costing is gonna look something like, you know, $10 a unit or whatever, you know, the good is. If she is excited about that, typically we're able to, through our platform, get a sample made for her to approve. And then if she approves, then we're able to oversee manufacturing and delivery of her goods on her behalf. That's amazing. So the entrepreneurs will not have to go directly to the maker. They'll be able to work with you through you and you handle everything. Correct. Yeah. So we really, our intent is to make it really easy for our clients so we can just be as turnkey as possible so that there is you know as little friction as possible for them to source and manufacture more ethically and more sustainably and then on our supplier side they really need us too because it's really difficult either working with huge companies like we work with so we to the market works with tj maxx or it's from rack bloomingdale's farfetch um, it's really hard for these suppliers to work directly with these big enterprise clients um, because of things like payment terms or not understanding vendor guidelines. And then even with smaller brands, um, oftentimes they really need our help because 
they want a brand to come to them with really well-packaged information. If you don't necessarily have a lot of experience, you know, in developing a line, you don't necessarily know what you should even be providing a factory to make sure that you're getting what you need and want. And so um, to the market is really focused on serious value add on both sides. How did you go about getting your first clients? So I remember the first order I got was from my old, uh, so in between working at the state department and starting to the market, I went to go work at the McCain Institute for international leadership. It is Senator and Mrs. McCain's a nonpartisan nonprofit. And they hired me to work on human trafficking and labor exploitation. So I was their director of humanitarian action and they have this amazing conference they do every year. And when I started my business, they were my first client. They gave me the order to produce organic cotton bags for the conference. And I remember it was like $1,200. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have hit the jackpot. (laughs) (laughs) Literally was just blown away that in a single order, you know, I could make $1,200 and you know, of course now we're lucky enough that we get, you know, million dollar orders. But at the time I was like, I've made it. it. So that was my, that was, I remember it so fondly standing in their office processing, I think their, their payment via like my phone on PayPal or something and being like, Jane, you did it. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Look, I still remember those first feelings when we started our agency business and getting those first clients and like handing us like physical checks in person and being like, people are paying us. Like that feeling totally. for any entrepreneur. It's like, oh, I created something that someone wants and they're paying for it. And yes, and it just gives you that, you know, all right, we're going to keep going and do it. So what happened from there? You get, you get them as your first client. What were some of your marketing strategies, you know, when you first started and what are some of the things you're doing now today to attract new clients? Any tips you can share? So when we were bootstrapping before we raised our first round, I was like guerrilla marketing, like, I guess a gorilla. I mean, like I was, I really wanted to, I sort of took a page out of the Rent the Runway founders book. So Rent the Runway, when they were like conceptualizing their business, they literally would do pop-ups and have like these, you know, racks of clothes that girls would come and try on. And then they would rent, you know, for the weekend, um, I think at each Harvard business school. And I w- I knew that it was really important for me to get feedback firsthand from people. And so I spent, you know, the first, I don't know, six months or something after I was traveling or maybe a year po- doing pop-ups. So literally around the holidays and then around, you know, other dates, maybe it was Mother's Day or some other reason why people would need to buy something. I would do these pop-ups and I would go to a city and somebody would host it and invite people over, or, you know, there would be sort of a, a reason for the event. Maybe it would be like a women's conference or something. And I would get in front of people and tell them what we were doing, why we were doing it, get feedback from them. And that was such a big part of it was word of mouth. And really we've been so lucky. I mean, we've spent so little money on marketing um, relative to where we are um, for better or worse. I mean, we've been so, because we're business to business, leveraging our own network rather than doing digital advertising or um, some other form. And then I would say, you know, I did write a book that Penguin Random House published in 2019 about conscious consumerism. And that was hugely helpful because it was like this 
printed thesis of the business that was sitting in shelves that I could reference back and send to people. And we continue to do that. It's this awesome way for people to learn about our business um, without you know, it being a hard sell. So that continues to be a really powerful tool. Definitely a, a great strategy for sure. Any tips you can share about the process of developing tech? It is not easy. It is such an undertaking. And I bet you have some lessons to share. <laughs> yeah. I think what's really helped us is understanding the workflows that you're trying to digitize. So technology is so based in trying to digitize things that we do analog, meaning like things that are paper and pen or phone call or whatever it is are now turning into video and tech enabled and automated. And so one thing that really helped us in our building was we fundamentally understood what the actual workflows were like that we wanted to digitize. And I say actual because I think one challenge that, that people can experience is that they build technology without understanding how the existing workflows go. And that technology is an idealized idea of what they could be, what the workflows could be, which sometimes works, but oftentimes doesn't right? Like typically, if you're trying to get people to be comfortable with a digital system for, for communication or for anything, you really want to mimic as best as possible the existing sort of sequence of events that would take place if it was analog and not sort of dream up a new system where they're having to make totally different decisions and do it on a tech platform, right? And so that really was a hugely helpful strategic approach that we took, that we knew what the analog workflows were. And then we really focused on digitizing reality rather than aspirational workflows. What do you focus on in the business now? I'm sure when you first started, you were doing a little bit of absolutely everything, but as you grow in scale, it's not possible to do all the things anymore. So what, what do you focus on now and what is your day-to-day -day like? Yeah, I, you know, I would say that I am still constantly our sort of chief salesperson. So um, that could be selling shares, i.e. raising money, or that could be selling the idea of the business to open doors. So it's, you know, constantly being the chief evangelist of our work to potential investors or potential clients. I mean, I'd say that's a huge portion of, of my day. Another massive portion is just enabling my leadership team to be successful. My job is to be a leader of leaders. So my job is to help them be successful in managing and operating and making sure that they have what they need to you know, meet their objectives. And so uh, managing of especially the executive leadership team is a huge part of my day-to-day -day basis as well. How big is your team now? We're about 20 which is still super small, but also I remember when we were three, you know, yeah. like very well, <laughs> you know, three, five, 10, 20, it's people management is, is not easy for sure. Mm -hmm. no. Any key learnings from growing a fast growing team? You know, we have really clear mission, vision, values, and strategic pillars that the whole team is aware of and they understand what they mean. What is our mission? What is our vision? What's the difference? What are our values? What does that mean? We're held accountable to them through our performance. 
and what are our strategic pillars, which is how we win as a business. So I think especially as a, as a distributed team, I mean, we have teammates everywhere from Portugal because we have an office there to the West Coast. So like really spread out relatively, making sure that people feel super grounded in the culture of the business um, and understand what we represent and how we want to represent ourselves has been hugely, hugely helpful. Hey, entrepreneurs, Stephanie here. Dressing up while working from home has truly been a challenge, but guess what? I found a solution founded by a fellow entrepreneurista. It's Armoire. You can rent stylish clothes weekly or monthly right from the app. You'll spend less time shopping and you can get up to 50% off of your first month plus two bonus items. Just use the code entrepreneurista at checkout or visit armoire.style forward slash entrepreneurista to claim your offer. Look and feel your best with Armoire. I know I do. That's armoire.style forward slash entrepreneurista. I'm still like totally loving the the pogs and the bracelets. <laughs> Did you sell slap bracelets? Was that in me? I don't remember. I, I definitely had slap bracelets, but that okay. was not in the collection. <laughs> okay. Pogs were so great. I mean, whoever invented that, it's actually really funny. It made me think of last night, I was looking at Charity Buzz. Have you ever looked at that app? I, I know it, but I haven't spent a lot of time in there, but I know it yet. They were like auctioning off a conversation with the founder of Pop Sockets. You know, the things oh gosh, you put on yeah. the back of your phone and his like headshot was so hilarious. It was him holding two phones, literally like this, <laughs> with the Pop Sockets on the back. And it made me think of Pogs because it's like Around so them. random. Yeah. Like they were so big. Made so much it's money. Like, <laughs> yes, totally. It's so weird. But I was like, good on you, brother. Like, get on with your bad self with your pop socket. Like, anyways, you, um, Pogs remind on, me of that. We went on a vacation when I was, I think I was, it was middle school. I think I was in sixth grade. We were in San Diego at the San Diego Zoo and we were in the gift oh, shop. And when so we went good. on vacation, my parents would give us like an allowance budget for vacation to buy stuff. Totally. And, One hugs, and these kids were showing me how to use them. They weren't on the East Coast yet. They started on the West Coast. I was like, oh, I should buy as many as I can with my vacation money. I'm going to bring them back home. I'm going to sell these to everyone because they're not there yet. <laughs> and then they started coming to the stores and I would like buy them all up. I'd bring them to school and sell them to everyone. And then I got in trouble because I wouldn't That's weren't allowed to sell so stuff. funny. <laughs> Better selling pogs than something else. So, right? Never went into any bad stuff, just the good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I got a really good line on some new pogs, new diamond <laughs> lockers. Got the newest slammer. <laughs> so good. All right, Jane, this is a fun little segment you don't know about. We're going to do a few, oh, rapid fire, a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? The first few words that come to your mind. Ready? Uh huh. All right. What is the app on your phone that you can't live without? Google Calendar. Mm -hmm. Live and die by Google Calendar. Same. Do you have a hidden talent? I can play the piano and I'm a really capable travel agent. I'm excellent at finding deals, discounts, booking flights. I'm positive I was a travel agent in a previous life. That is definitely a good <laughs> deal. I'm, I'm into all the discounts, so... <laughs> coffee or tea oh, coffee on drip into my veins favorite <laughs> business tool or solution that's helped you grow your business oof gosh I mean maybe LinkedIn because it's like this 
sneaky way of staying in touch, but like constantly marketing what you're doing. Yes. Love LinkedIn. Those messages on on LinkedIn are the absolute best. Mm-hmm. And finally, where is your happy place? Disney World is my happy place. I knew you're going to say that. Yeah. I'm like so excited. And I actually just found the best company called Mouse Watchers. Have you heard of this? No. It's the greatest invention. I'm like, maybe I need to buy this company. <laughs> so you sign up. It's so hard sometimes to find the best reservations at Disney World, yeah. as you know, right? Because mm-hmm. they only release it like 60 days in advance and to get into like the, the best restaurants like Sci-Fi Dine-In or whatever, it's really hard. So there is this company called Mouse Watchers where you can sign up for five alerts of restaurants you want to get into and dates that you are interested in. And it is something that is clearly scraping the website that sends you a text when a table opens up for you to click on, sign in and get the, uh, get the reservation. So now like we're going in like a month and a half and we're into sci-fi, Boca's Cafe. I'm looking um, this up right now. (laughs) Chico, California Grill, like all of the like restaurants that I'm like super excited about. And it's because of this, I feel like I need some sort of referral fee from Mouse Watchers, but because yeah. of mouse watchers. What is, what, I'm looking this up right now. What is get notified as soon as a restaurant reserve? This is amazing. What does it cost to use them? Well, it's $19 a month, but it's like you only would use it for the two months yeah. leading up to your, you know, your trip. So, but right. it's totally worth it. I'm like so pleased as much I found it. This is amazing. All right. I just, uh, I just looked up mouse watchers, follow them on Instagram and know this episode is not sponsored by mouse watchers, <laughs> but we can reach out to them. But it could be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Jane, what is like a typical day look like for you? So I work out in the morning at 8am, four days a week. Super helpful for me. I do yoga one day. I do Pilates one day. I have like a mixed day. And then uh, the fourth day is dance. So getting back to those musical theater roots that we share, I typically like to have a little bit of coffee time and like reading and reflection before I get going. Um, so that really helps ground me and make sure that I'm in the right mental space for the day. Um, and then the team typically turns on and is, you know, gets really active on Slack around 10 a.m. EST because we have so many teammates that are based on the West Coast that, you know, that's sort of a reasonable time for them to get going. And so it really starts kicking up around 10 and, and frankly, doesn't typically wind down until at least 8.30, if not nine. So it's, it's a full day, but it's one that I, you know, really enjoy and includes lots of coffee and endless Zooms with teammates and, you know, pitching, constant pitching. Yes. How do you manage balancing, you know, your family life, your business? Have you found ways to, you know, be able to turn off business or you just, it's all integrated every day? I really have tried to have at least one day a weekend where I don't do work. So I really try to have either a Saturday or Sunday where it's like absolutely no work at all. That helps a lot. I would say that I also, you know, try to give myself some space when I'm winding down at night to watch something funny. So I've like talked about many times with folks that I watch the golden girls 
every single night. It is what I put on when I'm falling asleep. And it like, my brain is like, okay, good night when I put it on, because I've been doing it for so long. I could like do every script <laughs> from that show at this point because I've been, you know, listening to it for so long. That helps a ton. Yeah. I mean, exercise, sleep, coffee, those are all Repeat. the key elements. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, those are like the basic inputs of my life at, at this stage. What are you most proud of? I'm really proud that I'm at a stage where you know, we're, we are supporting people's families. I mean, that, you know, is awesome that there are, you know, we have teammates that have, you know, kids and, and spouses and that what we've built is able to sustain them and, and a good source of income for them, which is really rewarding. I'm really proud of the number of clients that we've been able to work with and like the caliber of clients um, that we've been able to convert is also really satisfying to say, gosh, like how great that we've been able to work with everybody from Burlington to Bloomingdale's. And I'm proud of myself that I'm a significantly uh, more resilient human than I was when I started the business. You know, the scar tissue is very real and it is not something that I take lightly because I think it, you know, there's a lot of pain to get there and it continues to be pain <laughs> that develops the scar tissue. But I feel like it, it makes me more resilient and more capable of leading in difficult situations, whether that be now or in the future. So I know it's making me a better, you know, whether it's better future mother or better spouse or better leader. Absolutely. I feel like I, I talk about resilience all the time when people ask, you know, what, what makes a great entrepreneur? And it, it truly is like, you just have to be able to keep going and keep going and keep going and learn. And, and that's, I feel like what we all have, have in common for sure. My final question for you, and I wish we could stay and talk for hours because I feel like there's so much we could continue to talk about and you have so many incredible lessons to share, but what does being an entrepreneurista truly mean to you? I think being an entrepreneurista means that you are building what you dream of. You're making something that is a vision into reality, regardless of the cost, the sacrifice, the pain, the doubt, and that you're pushing yourself to out of your comfort zone into a place where you are, yeah, breaking barriers. I love that. So true. Jane, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your story, and all of these incredible lessons. Where can everyone find you and follow you? And for those who are interested in potentially working with you, what's the best place for them to reach out? So you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Jane Mossbacker. And uh, you can learn more about To The Market by just checking out tothemarket.com or following us on any of the social media channels at Let's Go TTM. Love that, Jane. Thank you again for being here. Yeah, so fun. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. 
You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Hey, Entrepreneurs, it's Steph here. Do you want to experience what it's like to be part of our Entrepreneurs League community of founders? Now is your chance. New member open enrollment begins on June 10th, and so does our Experience Week. I really want you to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to be part of the most supportive community that will be here to support you at all stages of your business journey during our Experience Week. This will be a five-day virtual event series, and it starts on Monday, June 10th through Friday, June 14th. You're going to get access to live networking and learning events, business growth strategies, as well as office hours with Kim Corral, who is a CEO and serial entrepreneurista, as well as a prominent angel investor. You will also get access to a session on how to win grants with Kat Weaver and Katie Dunn, founders of Power to Pitch. Plus, our mentor, Carrie Kirpin, will be teaching a session all about how to build a profitable business that can sell for more money. And of course, I'll be hosting two info and networking sessions where you can really get an inside look at all of the exclusive benefits and resources that are offered only inside of our Entrepreneurial League community. Plus, you'll have the chance to meet and build relationships with current members. You can register today for Experience Week over at entreprenista.com forward slash experience week. That's entreprenista.com forward slash experience week to join us for a week of free virtual events. I cannot wait to meet you and be part of your business journey.